So we went through Second Kings in our recent Bible reading. I wonder if you paused to think about the miracles of Elisha. Those are some of the most wonderful little gems, stories in our entire Old Testament account. I think I don't need to bring most of you up to speed. Two prophets dominate the life of and the narrative in the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings. There is Elijah, the one who appears out of nowhere on the scene. And many of his great prophecies, his battle against the, the, the prophets of Baal, uh, calling fire down from heaven and in, 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 in taking an entire sacrifice, um, a, a multitude of his interactions with Ahab and calling Israel to repentance. Then we see his mentor, mentee come on the scene, his protege, Elisha, who requests a second, a double portion of his blessing. And it's granted to him. And now Elisha is on the scene in 2 Kings, and we've been introduced to him. We see him in chapter 2, taking the mantle of Elijah, hitting, striking the waters of Jordan. The waters of Jordan uh, uh, open up. He passes over, and now Elijah's spirit, really the spirit of God, is resting on him. In chapter 3, we see him interacting with three kings who are going to war, the wicked heathen king of Israel, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, and then the king of Edom. And he gives a somewhat interesting instruction to carve out ditches in the middle of the valley where they are, and suddenly it is the source of God's victory for these three kings against Moab. And then we turn the page to chapter 4. And now, any sense of real narrative in a chronological sense ceases. It's like we've been plopped into an account in which God is simply recounting the best of. Here's Elisha doing something really cool. And here's Elisha doing something else really cool. And here's something else that Elisha's doing really cool. And it, it kind of continues for multiple chapters. Chapter 5, we see him healing Naaman. We see him making an axe head float, for goodness sakes. I mean, how cool is that? This, this axe head just plops up from the bottom of the river. It's really remarkable accounts. The danger is that we'll read those accounts and just think, oh, that's cool. The real question is whether we're going to see these narratives as inspired miracles that, as one preacher has said, are not just there to impress us, but are there to instruct us. And as we go through these accounts, not just the accounts of the miracles in the kings, but also of the lives of the kings, are we looking at them solely as informational? Are we looking at them simply to impress us, or are we looking for the instruction of God in each one of these situations? And in chapter 4 here, the very first account that we see here, I selected in part because it's Mother's Day, and it, to my mind, is one of the most touching displays of God's providence 
and his providential care to a mother in our scriptural record, but it is also because it teaches us something so much beyond merely God's care to an anonymous widow, an anonymous mother. We don't learn her name. We don't learn even her location in any specific way. We have no ability to identify her other than the fact that perhaps we're going to be able to interact with her in heaven one day. We know nothing really about her other than this one snapshot of her life in which God's care is miraculously provided to her. But it's done through a way that is intended to instruct us. And tonight, for those of you who are mothers, and for those of you who are not, I want to look at this story not only as a symbol of God's care and his faithful provision to you and to me, but also as a means of instruction on how God so frequently channels his grace to us. The title of the message tonight is God's Care, a Mother's Capacity. God's Care, a Mother's Capacity. Because we're going to see tonight that God's miraculous provision for this woman was exactly to the extent of the capacity that she provided. The vessels that she brought to God were filled and not one more, nor one fewer. It was exactly the amount of her supply that received the miraculous sustenance from God's storehouse of grace. Let's look at this in three different details tonight. First, I want to look at what I'm going to call the desperation. Secondly, I want to look at the direction that's given. And third, I want to look at the deliverance. And particularly, the means, the instruction for us in that deliverance. Let's start with the desperation. Shall you, shall, shall we, will you look with me at 2 Kings chapter 4? And children, as we have our, our quiz time tonight. I'm going to ask you for the details of this story, so be listening up as we make our way through it. 2 Kings 4 and verse 1 says, now they're cried. They're cried. Notice just that word. There's, there's this overwhelming despair that comes through this woman. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. Now you say that's a little bit of an odd place to start. Well, the sons of the prophets were the kind of ministry training school that Elijah apparently had founded and that Elisha was now recognized as the head of. It was kind of like, I take it, a Bible training program, we might call it today. These were the sons of the prophets who were who were targeted, who were tailored, who had been identified for ministry for Jehovah as God's spokesman. And here the wife of one of these ministry colleagues of Elisha is now a widow. And she says, she says to Elisha, thy servant, my husband. So you know this man, Elisha. Your servant, one of your ministry colleagues, perhaps one of your mentees, he is dead. And 
thou knowest that my, thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor has come to take unto him my two sons. She has two children, two sons to be bondmen, literally to be slaves. Bond slaves. Now notice what's going on here. She's a widow. That already was a very economically distressed position to be in in the Old Testament times, to miss the provider of the family. But then beyond that now, she is indebted. This husband, we don't know why, had racked up debts perhaps that he was unable to pay off before he died, or perhaps just in his death she incurred various costs that would result in debts. But whatever it is, she is now in an utterly precarious financial position. You say, what does it mean that her children would be taken as bondmen? Well, this was a provision of the Old Testament law. If you were to look at Leviticus chapter 25, you would see that there was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy, discharging debts. I'm declaring Article 7 or Article 11, whatever it is, a bankruptcy. My debts are discharged. Not so. You would go to what the English would have called a debtor's prison, but not quite that. You would basically take someone on to be your hired servant. Now, Leviticus 25 was clear. A, a person of Israel could not be made a slave in exchange for the payment of debt. It is very clear. They are to be a hired servant. They were effectively your employee. You, you were in a kind of, of involuntary employment until your debt was paid, or, importantly, until what? Till the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, all those debts would be released, and those sons would be freed again. Here, this woman says, my children are going to be slaves. It could be that her creditors had no respect for the law of Moses. They would, did not intend to make those boys simply employees, if you will, they intended to make them truly slaves and, and work under this kind of hard bondage. It could also be that this woman, in her emotional distress and in her despair, is simply crying out in an even more extreme way than what really was the case. But whatever it is, notice the, the desperation that comes through in her voice. There's no one else to turn to. Think about this. There were other sons of the prophets. Were none of them capable of being her kinsman redeemer? Were none of them available to help relieve the distress, the economic distress and the debt of their fellow ministry colleague? We don't know one way or the other. Scripture doesn't tell us. They could have been just as financially impecunious as she was. We don't know. All we know is she was down to her last hope and she comes to Elisha and listen to the kind of, what's the word, I, jaded? Do you hear some jadedness in her voice? Here's where I hear it. Thy servant, my husband, is dead and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. You know that he feared the Lord. Now, I wonder... I wonder if she's been like other Christians or other people of God over the years and something hard has fallen upon them and they look up in God and say, God, you knew that I have feared you. This was not supposed to happen to me. I did not think, I did not sign up for this. 
I thought my life, if I was following you, would be different. I wouldn't run into these hard times. And maybe she didn't have the bitterness that I'm hearing or a little bit of the jadedness, but, but, but there's a sense in which this is coming out in despair. God, you know that my husband feared you, and yet I'm here. I'm in this place. Let me just say, don't be surprised by hard times that come even to people who are carefully following the Lord. They will come. James 1 says the trial of our faith don't be surprised. Peter says that. James says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trial of your faith works patience. And so here this woman, with nowhere else to turn, turns to Elisha seemingly in a measure of despair. But notice secondly here, the direction that Elisha provides. I love this. Look at verse 2. And Elisha said unto her, what shall I do for thee? Would you, have been like, would you have liked to have been there to see the, his facial expression, his tone of voice? What shall I do unto thee? I'll tell you what I see, and maybe it's a little bit fanciful, and, and it may not, you may not see it there in the same way that I do, but Elisha was a man. What I mean by that is he was a human being. Sometimes we think of these prophets like Elijah and Elisha as these guys who are just, again, pulling out their spiritual six-shooter and just kind of strutting around town. Bam, bam, bam. I've got the miracle power. No. James says that Elijah was just like we are. He was a man subject to passions just like us. And do you know what I probably would have done if a widow came to me with that kind of crisis scenario? I probably would have looked at her in the face and drummed my fingers on the desk and says, what should I do for you? What should I do for you? I just love the sense that I don't know that Elisha knew in that immediate moment what God was going to do. He was a man just like you and me. In fact, I was, I was reminded that in, in 2 Kings 3, just a chapter before, do you know what he said when they asked him what they were going to do? We're getting counsel for you. What did he say? Bring a minstrel and play it for me. Bring a musical instrument and start playing the instrument. And I just kind of see him just kind of sitting back and closing his eyes and praying and thinking, and it said when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. It was like, oh, okay, all right, now I know what we're going to do. Go dig some ditches. <laughs> I love that. I wonder if in that same process, he was just processing. What shall I do unto thee? What shall I do? And then do you know what? Something came to mind. God brought something to mind to this prophet of God. Look at what he says next. Tell me, what hast thou in the house? Here's a man of God who knew how God operated. He was a God, he, he knew, he had a relationship with God. He had seen God through, come through over and over. And do you, know what, do you know what this wise man of God said? God's got to have something in that house to take care of you. He's got to. He's got to. And listen to this. What does she say? Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Now, this word pot, scholars tell us it's used in the Hebrew, is a very unique word. It's a word that may have more of the, of the picture of an, an anointing flask. Don't think some big pot. Think probably something more like this. Not something huge. Something small. Friends, this is all she had in the house. She had no food. She had nothing else. Her house would have been completely empty except for the little bit of oil 
and she was at alter, utterly her end of resources. And notice what Elisha, how he responds. Then he said, it's as if now there's clarity in the situation. Now God has shined a beam of light on what the direction is to be. And he says, go borrow the vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few. Or the way that we would say it is, don't just borrow a few. Borrow more than a few. Now, I just want us to look for just a moment at, at Elisha's conviction here. God's at work. Now, this is something that will be very stabilizing for us. If the next time we are in desperation, instead of coming out, just vomiting out jadedness, vomiting out despair, the first thing we step back and says, okay, God, what's in the house? God, what is in the house? Now, why would we say, God, what's in the house? Because the conviction of Elisha was, God's not let it, left this woman. He's still involved here. So, lady, tell me what you have in the house, and let's figure out what to do next. Sometimes some of us just need to step back and realize God's still at work in this situation. What do I have in the house in this crisis situation? It might only be this much, but something is enough for God. So notice here his conviction, but notice his command. Go borrow the vessels abroad of all thy neighbors. Man, I sure hope she didn't have any rough neighbor relationships. I hope we never, she never had any of those neighbors next door that you're not sure if you can go borrow sugar from. I hope she didn't have any broken relationships with the people in her neighborhood because the command that she got was go to all of them. And I just want you to imagine something a little bit humiliating about this. You're going to your neighbors and you're saying, do you have any empty vessels in your house? Any, any extra pots? Any extra pans? Anything to hold things? And don't you think they would have said, well, why? Well, I'm not quite sure. I just, I just know I need them. Okay, well, let me go scrounge around and get... And here, here, she is taking vessels here and here and the next house and the next house. And she's walking back into the house. What? What a re remarkable thing. Notice then what Elisha says. And when thou art come in, verse 4, thou shalt shut the door upon thee. So this was to be entirely private. And upon thy sons, your whole family together, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. Did you notice something? He told her what to do, but he didn't tell her exactly what would happen. All he said is, go into your house, shut the door, pour it out, and whatever is full, just set it to the side. He didn't tell her how many. He didn't tell her how few. He just said, go get some vessels and pour this amount of oil into them. Now, immediately, immediately, she should have said, she would have thought, this vessel's not going to fill even one. This vessel's not even going to fill one. So, something's going on here. But she knew enough to trust the word of God's messenger. And so what did she do? Notice thirdly what I'll call the deliverance. Notice here verse 5. So she went from him 
and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out and it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son bring me yet a vessel bring me another vessel and he said unto her there is not a vessel more that's all there are no more vessels from the neighbors and the oil stayed the oil stopped there was no more this vessel was empty. There was exactly enough oil to fill the capacity of the vessels that she had brought. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. Notice here in God's deliverance here, what I'm going to call God's care. Do you know there's nothing else to this narrative that ties in anywhere else to scripture about this woman or about her sons? This is one isolated incident of an anonymous widow. We don't know her husband. We don't know her name. We don't know the name of her two children. All we know is that God cared for this anonymous woman. An oil vessel that miraculously replenished, kept on pouring until not only, get this, not only was her debt paid, but that she lived of the rest. God's grace not only overflowed to meet her immediate need, it kept on meeting her daily needs through the rest of her life. And I'll point out here again, this is the miracle of God's care for you as well. It is that no matter how anonymous you may feel, no matter how out of the way, out of the plan of God's usefulness you feel in your daily life, God's care, His grace, His miraculous provision is enough to reach you. And in fact, this picture is a wonderful picture of what happened at your salvation. Mercy there was great, our hymn says, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied for me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. The grace of God that came to you in Jesus Christ through his substitutionary death for you was not only enough to pay off your debt. His grace overflowing there was enough to provide everything you need today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life. We came into the kingdom of God by grace. We walk every day by the same grace. Your standing before God today and forever is on the grace of Jesus Christ and no less. It is not your performance. It is no merit of your own that this week you will have provision from God to meet all your needs. It is the same grace that was given to you when your debts were paid, when your account was settled, and you became right with God. God's grace overflowed not only to this woman's debt, but it overflowed to her ongoing life as well. And God's concern 
is for each mother here, each widow here, each person who feels out of the way and desperate in their circumstances. But notice something else here I'm going to call the capacity. The capacity. Notice the amount of the resource that this woman received. The amount of the resource she received was exactly commensurate to the capacity she provided. To the amount of vessels that she borrowed from her neighbors. In other words, we see here that when the oil ran out was when the last vessel was full. Had presumably she collected fewer vessels, she would have had less oil. Presumably had she supplied more vessels, she would have had more oil. You say, what's going on here? What drove her to collect vessels from those neighbors, friends? What drove her? It was obedience, but there was something behind obedience. Faith. She believed. She had this much oil, and the man of God says, go get more and pour out until they're full. And she said, well, let me get as many as I can. She believed. And her faith drove the embarrassing process of collecting, scrounging as many vessels as she could get from her neighbors. And God's grace poured out to her in the, in the supply, in the capacity that her faith drove. God's grace filled the volume of her supply in faith. And friends, this is one of the great instructions of this miracle. This is a spiritual principle, a spiritual law. It is the spiritual law that Jesus himself gave. You remember in Matthew chapter 9 when two blind men come into the house and they are crying to him for healing and Jesus says to them, according to your faith, be it unto you. According to your faith, be it unto you. Jesus made a similar point when he talked in one of his teaching parables in the book of Mark. He said that as you measure out, it will be measured back to you again. In the same volume, in the same amount that you meet, it will be measured to you again. And we talked about this when we studied the book of Mark together, that the size of the bowl you bring to God is the size that He will fill with His miraculous, gracious supply. He said, in fact, it will be overflowing. To whom much is, to, whom, to those who measure out much, more will be given. To those who hear, they will have more opportunity for healing hearing, the gracious supply of God is connected to the supply, the capacity that by faith we offer him in our obedience. As big as her faith was what she received and nothing more. Now this is true the other way too. In Mark chapter 6, you may recall that Jesus was in his home country. 
and what he did there, what scripture says. Listen to what Mark chapter 6 says. He could, do, he could there do no mighty work. He could do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Scripture says that Christ's healing power, if you will, in this sense, was hindered. Death couldn't hinder it. Disease couldn't hinder it. A storm couldn't hinder it. Any, nothing, demonic activity couldn't hinder it. What hindered it? Unbelief when men did not come to him with the capacity of faith to receive it. Listen to what Alexander McLaren very wisely says on this passage. He says, you have God in the measure in which you desire him. You have God in the measure in which you desire him. Only remember that the desire that brings God must be more than a feeble, fleeting wish. Wishing is one thing. Willing is quite another. Lazily wishing and strenuously desiring are two entirely different postures of mind. The former gets nothing, and the latter gets everything, gets God, and with God, all that God can bring. Do you know, it's simply, it's a simple point. Some of us look around in our desperation and we say, God, where are you? And God looks back at us and says, and where are you? Where is the capacity that by faith you are offering me? When we wonder, God, why aren't my quiet times with you more profitable? We might ask, expect God to turn back to us and say, by faith, how, much of a, how, much, how big of a, of a vessel are you bringing me to fill? God, why aren't my prayer times more lively? Why aren't, they, why aren't I having greater communication? Why aren't I having greater answers to prayer? And God may look back at us and say, well, how big a supply is your faith offering me to fill? According to the capacity that by faith we bring to God, God graciously fills and indeed is willing to overflow. This woman saw the gracious care of God through the faith that she placed in the direction that God had given her. Friends, if I could just stop here for a moment, I would just ask whatever situation you find yourself in, in crisis, in desperation, in challenge, perhaps it would be important for you and for for I to step back and say, how big is the capacity by faith that I'm offering God here? What kind of volume am I giving him in empty vessels to say, God, fill, fill. I am relying on you and on your direction. What a wonderful story. But there's one more thing I think that's so fitting for Mother's Day today. Will you notice the direction that God gave through Elisha, he says, verse 4, And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons. Then notice this. Look at what she did. 
So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her son. She closed the door, just the family. And her sons brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. You see what God was intending. God was intending to grow her faith. How much do you believe the word of Elisha? It'll be shown in how many vessels you grab. But do you know what God also was doing? He was expanding the faith of her sons, of her children. They were an essential part of this story. They were part of the desperation. So let's make them part of the deliverance. Can I just comment on this for just one moment? Sometimes, and I think I feel this same temptation as a parent, we don't bring our children into the desperation. We don't bring the children into our weakness, into the fact that sometimes we've only got a flask of oil that's this big, because we want to appear big to our children. Daddy's got it. Mommy's got it. We're capable. We don't have big problems. But do you know what the problem is? When we portray to our children that mommy and daddy are really big, do you know what we're risking? Convincing them that God is actually really small. That mommy and daddy have it all. And that God is not nearly so big as he is. Do you know what's much better than that? What's much better than that is what this woman did. Bringing them into her weakness bringing them into her desperation, bringing them into her challenge, and then bringing them by her side to see how big God actually is in this situation. Some of you remember from your childhood what it did to your faith when God came through for your family in really hard situations. You were side by side with mom and dad as they and you both learn together how big God is. And let me encourage you in the same way today, parents. There are some circumstances of life that you can do nothing more than shut the door. It's a family situation. It's a situation that God is intending mom and dad, or maybe just mom, and just the kids are going to have to see how big God is in this situation. I can testify to that in our own life. Nearly 10 years ago, when my dad passed, my mom was the one who told each of us his children, we are going to together look for the fingerprints of God in taking care of me and of our family without your father here. She was the one who led us. She was the one who closed the door, if you will, and said, we're going to see the hand of God. And she would testify, and every one of us would testify that we have seen the gracious provision of God over and over and over again in ways big and small. Because a mother, like this mother, brought her children into her weakness, into her crisis, into her challenge, and said, let's trust and see what God is going to do. So, in these miracles, in 2 Kings chapter 4, 
Don't just read past them and be impressed by them. Dig into them and ask what God is teaching you in this specific miracle. See God's care for you, no matter how anonymous and out of the way you feel, no matter how much desperation you find yourself in. Notice the connection between God's grace being poured out through this woman and the faith that she brought in empty vessels in reliance on God's word. And don't forget, if you're a parent today, don't forget to bring your children in, mom, dad, to your own weakness, to your own need, to your own desperation, spiritually or physically. They should see you as small, and they must see God as big.